doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. I want to stop to make this talk to you a little bit about who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to slaves. And while slavery in the Bible was a little bit different than it was in early America, Christians never really addressed that issue back then. Uh, it kind of resolved itself because Christianity came on the scene, but you find very little said about it. It's talked about as if it was common. And it was. But I say that to you this morning because to understand what Peter has said in this passage, you've got to get that context right, that there were people who were indentured to others, who had to work out a debt as servants, which is what Peter says here, but the real word is doulos slaves. And you need to know that. And he's going to talk a little bit about this concept of suffering unjustly. Now we denote that he used the word beaten in the word, that's in the scripture this morning. That's important. We, most of us, can't relate to being beaten unjustly. So those two things you need to know before I dive in this morning and tell you the story that I'm about to tell you. In 1989, do you know how long ago that is? In 1989, I was sent to a new church, and life began just scurrying for us. I had that summer completed seminary, and it was pretty typical back then, the United Methodist Church, the year that you completed your seminary to get moved to another place. I argued against it, but they sent me. Um, in any event, there I found myself in that local congregation, the first day that I was sent there with a moving truck backed up to the front porch and all of the people from the church going in and out of that truck unloading what little belongings Janice and I had together. One guy there said to me, we would like to come over and do some work on the parsonage this week. Are you okay with that? Now, mind you, pastors move July 1st. I thought maybe he was coming, you know, to put a new toilet seat on or to do some strange thing. I said, sure, feel free. The very next night, about eight people showed up on the front porch. They had these steamer things that you use on wallpaper. They had chisels. They had, you know, scrapers. They had all this stuff. And that was about July 2nd. And they showed up, and that room was a box of a house that had eight rooms in it and a bathroom. And seven of the eight rooms, they completely stripped down to the plaster walls. I can still remember how many layers of wallpaper they took out of that house in one of the rooms. Thirteen layers of wallpaper. I mean, it was almost a half an inch thick. They worked and worked and worked and did all that. And about the week of Thanksgiving, they left. <laughs> Every night they were there, scraping and pushing and shoving. We'd close a door and eat our dinner or open the door and have them eat with us. But they were there every night from about 5.30 until sometimes 10.30, 11 at night. And they got that parsonage in ship shape. As soon as they were done with that, we kind of looked at each other and said, what are we going to do next? Lo and behold, we got the brilliant idea um, that we would like to add on to the church. We hashed that around for a little bit and Ended up calling a friend of mine that does capital funds campaigns. He came down and ran that for us. And we got enough pledges that we could add on to that building 
enough room for a preschool, a fellowship hall, a new kitchen, and an office for the pastor because up to that point, you had a little closet that you walked into to use, and we got to building. When the building was done, this was an amazing thing. When we were looking at pledges to take care of that, um, we had paid for it just before it got done. We were looking at pledges that were going to last about 10 years. Life was good. Now, I, I need to tell you, church in America was different in 1989 than it is in the year 2023. Well, then we kind of looked at each other and said, what are we going to do next? Well, I'll tell you what Janice and I did. In the middle of that, we looked at each other and said, we ought to start having kids. So in 1991, Ariel came along. 1992, Jake came along. 1994, Nate came along. We skipped 93 because once we got Jake, we had to pray about it. And then in 1995, Tracy came along. So in those six years, there's something that happens with a church and I can't explain it to you when, when, when people have kids. When people have kids in the church, it's a good thing. And that church began to get more kids. And it was a different time, but that's how it worked. And everything seemed to be clicking for us. One day the church STR committee, that's the committee that watches after the pastor to see he doesn't get out of control, came to me and they said, Pastor, we know that you finished seminary just before you got here. And we know that you've started a family and we've done this big building thing and we've done it all well. And we know that you got ordained while you were here. And we know that you always liked seminary. So we want to make a deal with you. You've always wanted to go back to school to get that doctor degree. We want to pay for it. I was, I was on cloud nine. When you went to Ashland Seminary, you had to get your supervisor to sign a piece of paper to say that it was okay for you to go back to school. I got the admission forms. I took it to my DS. I said, they want to pay for me to go to school. They're happy with me. They want me to do this, and I need you to sign this piece of paper. And he looked at it and said, I'm going to have to pray about this. Well, if you know me, you know what I say to you. If somebody tells me they're going to pray about something, that means no. Next day, he called me up, and he said, Joel, you got four kids. You got, well, actually, had three kids at that point, one on the way. You got three kids, one on the way. You just went through all this. You just did all that. You just da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm not going to sign the papers. You need to take a rest. Now, if you also know me, you know that made me mad. And um, I did what anybody else would do. I said, my supervisor... I drove up to 8800 Cleveland Avenue, walked into the bishop's office and said, I need you to sign this. He pulled out his pen, he signed it, and he said, good luck. He slid it back, and I sent it on to Ashland. One day I got a phone call from the DS, and he said, I saw what you did there. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I got a phone call from the DS, and they said, you're moving somewhere. That's his way of saying to me, I'll show you. <laughs> and cut to the chase, I got sent somewhere. Cut to the chase, he showed me. And it used to bug me. Every time we'd be in a meeting together, he would look at me and he would do this. 
gospel truth shortly before he died. I pulled into Mark's up there on Cleveland Avenue, pulled into a parking space, looked over at the person sitting across me at the parking space, and it was him, and he went, <laughs> I felt so wrong. I felt so incredibly wrong. I felt like I was suffering unjustly. And you would say, Joel, that's not suffering. And let's just stop for a minute. I've been around churches long enough to know that many of you will come to me or have come to me or said to me things like this. My boss is a pain. You've come to me and you've said, there's this person at work who just cuts under my skin more than you could ever imagine. And maybe if you're not working now, you can go back to when you were. I can remember one guy that came to me, and he said how bad his work was, and on and on and on. And I was in this book club, and along came a book in the mail one day, and it was titled, Take This Job and Love It, right? Not, not the country song. Take This Job and Love It. And I gave it to him and said, you need to read this. He quit coming to church. <laughs> Some of us have had that person in our lives that causes us to have pain, right? And we think this is so unjust, so wrong. Peter says, servants, remember that word means slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good ones and the gentle ones, but to the unjust ones. That's hard to do. You can take this out of its context. And you can apply it to our lives in so many ways today because we all have had either an employer or a co-worker or somebody in our life, in our relationships, that has treated us as we see it unjustly. Peter goes on and says, here is grace. Here's something that's gracious about that. When because you are mindful of God, you endure suffering and sorrows unjustly. I gotta stop right there and say, hold on, Joel. Because I know what the word grace means. Grace means the unmerited favor of God. Do you mean to tell me that it is God's favor on me when I suffer unjustly? Well, that's what Peter said. He said, You want to see the grace of God? It'll be when you, because you are a Christian, determine that you are going to suffer injustice with purpose. Then Peter goes on to say, for what credit is it when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure? What, what are you saying here? Let's get it. There were slaves he was addressing, but you know as well as I do, we all know that we do things that we maybe not do not deserve being beaten for, for sure, but we do things that we asked for it, right? We do things at times that we had it coming. We may not want to admit it to everybody, but we know that's so. And that's what Peter says here. He says, what credit do you have if you get what you ask for? But look what he says. But if, when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure. This is a grace in the sight of God. And you've got to stop and ask yourself, because what Peter's saying is, if you suffer unjustly, at some times it can be something that you are to be commended for. Even though you're not looking for commendation. It says in the 21st verse, for to this you've been called. Huh, what? For to this you've been called. The 
because Christ also suffered for you, and he left you an example so that you can follow in his footsteps. And so we have to ask Peter the question, do you mean to tell me that God's calling that has brought me to salvation is also divinely ordaining every aspect of my life to where I have to even look at unjust suffering as a grace from God? Well, not all of it, because some of it's spiteful, but there's a possibility that some of it is. And let me explain to you why I'm, what I'm telling you here. Remember what Romans says. Paul wrote to the church at Romans, said this, We know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for the good to those who are called according to his purpose. So if you're a Christian and you've been called and God's got you here for a purpose, and by the way, church, if you didn't listen when I prayed this morning, I prayed because I believe God's got us right here at 2521 12th Street with a purpose right now. But he says when you've been saved, when you came to know Jesus, he has called you to this purpose. And, and it goes on to say, because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now you've probably gotten your head right there that you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You know, we wear the bracelets, what would Jesus do, right? Well, Paul just said to us, we believe that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because those people, God has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we, we got that picture of the Jesus that we like to see, right? He's got a halo over his head. He's perfect in every way. He looks the way we think he ought to look, whoever you are, because we've all got our own picture. I don't think that's what Paul was saying here. I think Paul was saying, along with Peter, that sometimes Jesus looked bloody, beaten, and dying upon a cross. And you've got to keep that in mind. If a servant is really to follow Jesus' tracks, you've got to follow him all the way down the plank. That's why Jesus said, Whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That's why Jesus said things like, if you would come after me, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's why Jesus said things like John 13, 15, I've given an example to you that you should do just as I have done to you. And we want to say, okay, well, he washed our feet, so we're supposed to wash everybody else's feet. Yeah, that's right, be a servant, but also understand that all things work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes, who he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that doesn't mean you're going to have the white robe flying up into heaven. It may just mean that you've got a wooden cross on which your beaten, bloody body hypothetically, if you understand, your life is hanging upon it. Peter goes on to explain, Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. If you go back into Isaiah, you'll find there Isaiah 53, and there's these, these, these sections in Isaiah that we call the servant songs. And Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. It's where you read things like this. 
They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. That's referring to Jesus buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Jesus crucified upon a cross between two thieves, making his grave with the wicked. And Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, had people saying stuff to him. Look for a minute what that verse says. It says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Can I tell you something? When somebody begins to say things about me, my first inclination is to say, I'll say something. Sorry, that's just how it is for me. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they should look at him as a glutton, a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And what did Jesus say back? Spit. They spit in his face and they struck him. Some slapped him. And what did Jesus do? Nothing. Nothing came out of his mouth. They spit on him. They took the reed. They struck him on the head. Nothing. The scribes who came from Jerusalem they came and said, he's possessed by a devil, by the prince of demons, and he's casting out demons. And what did Jesus do? Nothing. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. I don't want you to read this. It's too much verses up there, but I do want to point this out to you. In every situation where Jesus suffers and people hurl insults at him, I want you to be sure you get this. He holds his tongue. He holds his tongue. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. Instead, he chose to commit his case to God. God will take care of it. The story is told of this woman in the little country church. You know the little country church. They had the alder rail that circled all the way around like this, you know. Story is told that the, the revival preacher was preaching one night. He's preaching hard on the, the, the sin of the tongue, people's tongue running off, you know, gossip and all that kind of stuff. And when the altar call was made, uh, this, this woman got up and she came down to the altar. And this other woman came up and got down next to her and prayed. I shouldn't use the word old. I apologize, but I am 61 this year, so I'm with you. Anyway. They're down there praying together, and the preacher comes down, and he looks at this one lady, and he says, what are you here for? She said, I want to pray about my tongue. I want to pray about the gossip and all the things that I say. And he said, well, ma'am, he said, you're going to have to lay it all on the altar. And the lady sitting to the next says, it ain't long enough. <laughs> that was a joke. He missed it. <laughs> and Peter goes on and says, speaking of Jesus, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Now, let's stop for a minute and get this. Remember back there at the 19th, 20th verse, speaking to slaves, Jesus says, you've been beaten unjustly. Right here at the 25th verse, he's saying, by his stripes, you have been healed. Praying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let me just say a few things to you about what Peter has to say here. 
He says that Jesus is totally innocent, patently innocent, without sin, and yet he suffers. He also tells us that, that Jesus' sufferings were for someone else, and that, us is not, that, that someone else is us. We call that the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. He did no sin, and yet he suffered for us. Jesus, if you know the Old Testament uh, legalism, you know that there was a scapegoat that was turned loose and also sacrifice that was sacrificed. Jesus became actually both the scapegoat that was done away with the sin and the sacrifice that died for the sin. And the reason he does this, pay your close attention here, the reason he died substitutionary as a scapegoat, as sacrificially, is so that by his death, you and I can have life. When, when Peter says, let me just stop and remind you what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying, because he lives, I can live. Have you heard that lately? Because he lives and he conquered the grave, because he died and rose again, my life can be dead to sin and I can live for him. So here when, when Peter says, by his wounds, you've been healed. So here stands a Christian slave who's come to faith in Jesus and thinks that by coming to faith in Jesus, they're going to be set free from their slavery. But it just didn't happen for them. It wasn't the way that it worked. When they're being told right now by Peter, I know you've suffered unjustly, but by his stripes you've been healed. What they had to come to at that point was understand what Peter says when he says you've now returned to him who loved you and gave his life for you and has stood in your place for the wounds that you truly deserve. Can you remember Jesus' parable, the 99? He leaves the 99 to go for the one. He, he, he steps out for the one. He, Peter is saying to those slaves, that's me. It is easy to be wrong when you're in the wrong. In fact, you probably ought to expect it. But it takes a special kind of person to take it when they're not in the wrong. It takes a Christian. You say, but why, Joel, would you say that? Why would Peter say that? Let me, let me just put you in here real quick. Because Peter believes, as I do, and I hope you do, that our relationship to God is far more important than our relationship to unjust people. And the way that we respond to injustice and injustice as a Christian, often can reflect a whole lot about what we think about him. Listen to this. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. 
the point of Peter's message is not that you just be a wimp and suffer in every circumstance and situation. No, there's a time when you've got to step up to the plate and swing the bat and say, this isn't right, and it's not going to be this way, and I'm going to be part of the change to make it change. But there is also a time to recognize that our human tendency to fight back is probably not the right answer. And that in order for God to get the glory in the situation, it would depend upon my response to whatever that situation is. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6, if you only love those who love you. Does that sound like what Peter wrote? If you only love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those that love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back what they've wronged. Paul would say in the book of Romans, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of everyone. If it's possible, and, and, and please pay attention to that, if it's possible, Let's go back to that verse I just read for a minute. Do what's honorable in the sight of all men. That means think about what you're going to do or say before you do it or say it. Then he goes on and says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all men. Watch your witness for Jesus. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave the wrath to God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I'll repay, saith the Lord. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with your good. For to this you've been called, Peter says, because Christ has suffered for you. And he's left you an example to follow in his steps. I want to stop for a minute and just have you note a few things on these verses, two verses at a time, and then I'll sum this up. Jesus responded to unjust suffering in a very specific way. Jesus, if you look at what happened to him, it should prove to us, it should prove to us that it is possible to be in the center of God's will, perfectly exactly where God wants you to be, to be loved by God and still suffer incredibly unjust things if you don't believe me just stop and remember what happened on good friday take a good look at that cross and see what jesus happened because jesus humbled himself he showed a great deal of submission there on that cross but one thing he did not show was weakness that was power that was power there's this conversation when jesus was on trial between Jesus and Pilate. And Pilate, you'll remember, comes out and says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, are you saying this or have you heard others say it about me? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have given you to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, my servants would be fighting that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom's not from this world. And Pilate said, so you're a king. And Jesus said, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to be a witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? 
Jesus never answered them. Jesus doesn't respond at all. But Pilate's looking at proof. It was found in this one who'd been beaten and flogged and bloodied. You know what Pilate does when Jesus doesn't answer? He turns to his guards and he says, I find no guilt in this man. That's how Jesus went to the cross. He himself, Peter says, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we could die to sin and live to righteousness and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, please understand this church, there's a far difference between the two words I'm about to give you. Jesus didn't die a martyr, he died a savior. Got that? Jesus didn't die a martyr. He died a substitutionary, salvific, atonement death for us. That's a lot of words, isn't it? He died for us as our Savior, as as a sacrifice. Paul would say it this way, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Then Peter goes on and says, for you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd. Do you remember when you read the 23rd Psalm this morning? The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I will not want. He leads me in my path for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is with me. His rod, his staff, they are comfort to me. Stop and read that 23rd Psalm sometime for yourself. The psalmist doesn't say to us that God is Santa Claus. He says that, that, that God, the shepherd of our souls, suffered and yet was obedient to his father. And you and I may have to suffer and be obedient as a witness. And you may, and I may have to suffer and be obedient in our commitment to him. And you and I may have to suffer and be obedient, submissive to suffering. Because that is the tool that God has chosen to use right now at this point in time for our spiritual growth to be molded and sculptured and shaped into the very image of himself. Because what did Paul say? We know that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes, that they might be conformed to the image of his Son. Now before I get to my bottom line, and you know how I do this, I read my bottom line and I end pretty quick. Before I get there, I want to reiterate to you. Peter is not telling us sit back and be a wimp in every situation. This offends anybody here today? (laughs) If it offends you, I don't care. (laughs) Sometimes you got to stand up and be a man or a woman. There are times when that's the case. And there's times when you just have to do that. But there is also times when the suffering submission to the will of God actually the best thing for us enables us to be conformed into looking like he intends for us to look I'm almost to that last slide I'm thinking about touching that so you can see it let me take a drink of coffee while I think about it 
Anybody here running a marathon? Anybody here ever running a marathon? Becky, Bob, how I thought it was Becky. Okay. You don't wake up one day. I've, ne- <laughs> I've never run in a marathon. You get better than that. But you don't wake up one day and run in a marathon, do you? You go out one day, you run a block. You go out the next day, you run a block and a half, and it builds with time. And you take rest, and you eat right, and nutrition, and all those things. But it takes time to get there. Then one day you run the race. Here is just about everything in life. Here's the bottom line. Suffering and submission build spiritual stamina. I've heard people a lot of times say, you know, I just feel like God's not with me in this situation. And I think I got questioned back there because sometimes I think what I ought to be asking is, are you with God in this situation? Do you realize that whatever the situation is, he may be using that to form you into his image. And so, suffering today may be what helps us to run the race tomorrow. Suffering as a Christian today may may be what prepares us for what's going to come next week. And I just want to say these two sentences, actually these four sentences here, two at a time. I want you to think about them as we close. The way we respond sometimes says more about us than it does about Jesus. And that matters. I want you to think about that. Sometimes the way we respond to injustice says more about us than it does about him. And that ought to matter to the Christian. But here's the second part. Sometimes the way we respond says more about him than it does about us. And that matters too. Wisdom is to know the difference. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and yet he opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again but handed the situation over to him who judges justly. There's a time to do that. There's a time to do that. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a benediction to each other. This is one that I like. I hope that you will sing it with me.